0: If you were to be given the choice between winning the Dom Alstenska down on Sunday or qualifying for the Euros with Ireland, which would you take?
1: Ah, oh, stop. Ah, uh, no, I can't. there's... No, I can't. There's It's both the love
0: of both teams and it's... It's
1: a... Uh, oh, you know, I, I have to... I have to... I'd say... Ah, oh, no, I can't answer No, I refuse. Refuse. No way.
0: That was six years ago, lads, in the town of Eskilstuna in Sweden. Louise Quinn, Irish centre-back, and at the time, they'd never qualified for a major tournament. Jesus, if they didn't go and do it last week. Um, You'll have heard Louise on this podcast before. She spoke to us before they played against Sweden in the World Cup qualifiers. Fantastic woman. Go back and listen to that episode. And you can hear the desire uh, to get the Irish team qualified and, you know, her having played in Sweden and seeing how things are done in women's football here. And I was beside myself when they beat Scotland the other night, 1-0, to make their way to uh, the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. And the draw will be next Saturday and we'll find out where we're going. But it was just one of those magical moments. I sent a message to Louise, right? But as with a lot of the players like their phones just exploded after they qualified for the tournament so she didn't get back to me uh, in time for the episode of this podcast and that's fully understandable don't hold that against her at all at all at all if we get any time between now and the World Cup we'd be bleeding delighted but yeah that was the, the high point of my Irish in Sweden last week uh, I hope you're well I hope you enjoyed that if you got 1% of the joy out of that victory for the Irish team that I did well by Jesus you went in a bad place at all last week so that was magnificent at all together. And other than that, I'm meeting myself, coming back to some fantastic things going on in the community here. Well, you can see the change of the seasons here. The leaves are falling from the trees, but uh, things are beginning to fall into place. We've a few things to look forward to. Certainly, in Stockholm, we have Shamrock Rovers coming at the start of next month. I think they'll be staying with Marjorie there at the the Courtyard Hotel, the Marriott Courtyard Hotel down there on Kungsholmen. So that's something to look forward to. The same venue is also going to be the venue for the Swedish Irish Society's Christmas dinner on November the twenty sixth. Right now, kicking myself, boys and girls kicking myself because much and all as I love a good World Cup and a good Olympics I'm going to be in Qatar when the Swedish Irish Society Christmas dinner is on and I heard such great things about last year's Christmas dinner and of course you know you'd have to have nothing but respect for Marjorie and the job that they're doing down at the hotel there That I had a zero in had the, the, the date I was tipped off by the date a few weeks ago didn't break the news sorry about that but uh, yes yeah, so I had that ringed in the calendar and then I went ah balls I'm sure, going to be sweating uh, down below in Qatar uh, doing something to do with football But if I can't be there, that means that there's another seat open for you. So if you go to the Swedish Irish Society's Facebook page or look them up on Twitter or look up on their website or whatever, you'll find the details. There is a discount for members, so it's always worthwhile being a member of the Swedish Irish Society Uh, if you have the few bob. There's family memberships there and that kind of thing. And it's just, it's a great way of keeping in touch. So get involved with the Swedish Irish Society there. But get down there for the dinner because I believe the Turkey last year, uh, and this came from some very well-placed sources, I'd have to say, the Turkey down there last year was fantastic. So uh, yeah, get that sorted out as well. We have, uh, as I said, there's plenty of sport coming up in the near future. Uh, between us all, right? I've uh, I've been talking to a TV company back in Ireland to see if they won't let myself and Zach elbazedi who plays here for the IK, commentate on the match for Virgin Media. Now it may not happen because you know they do things differently. There's not a huge budget, and of course Shamrock Rovers have no chance of progressing. So maybe the interest in that game is not going to be huge. But it would be some crack to have the River Valley Ronaldo from Swords and me good self sitting there uh, doing a game about Swedish football because I've been watching you Gordon for God knows how long. And Zach, of course, will be playing against them very soon. He'll actually played against me derby game i think by the time you've heard this so that'll be a bit of gas altogether but um, that's another one i think that game is on the first week of november so we'll have to do something about getting a crowd of people together you know and see if we can get a bunch of tickets together and go down and, and sit down and watch that match and so, geez, you never know i might even record an L podcast Uh, I did mention a trip up to Lulio. I'm not sure if that's going to happen on the same date. It's looking unlikely now. It's just there's so much work going on here. Uh, As you will have heard, hopefully on last week's episode, you would have heard that I'm launching a podcast. Because we have a great time listening to this every week, don't we? We have a great time suggesting guests to me and getting them on there and say, Oh, you should talk to this fella or talk to this girl or this person's doing something very interesting. Uh, And, you know, so why not do that for the global community? So... This will be hitting your ears on Monday and on Wednesday I'm going to be launching the first episode of The Global Gale, right? And it's at the point now where you know when you start something like this and you go, okay, to be on the safe side I have to ask about six different people if they go on on." and I think I've already interviewed four of them and I kind of have to do something representative. You want to do something because just in case uh, people are listening to something for the first time you want to go, okay, if you keep listening to this this is the kind of thing you're going to get. So it's driven me up the walls the last few nights you know, everybody, and it's great when everybody says yes to do this. Interviews, it's magical altogether. Before we go any further, I believe uh, James Linus is recovering from a couple of broken bones there. I'm not not even going to ask how he did it, right? I know he's mad for the hunting and a great man in the catering and in the food business, so I'm not even going to ask how he did it until I have him sitting across from me and he can explain it in his own inimitable way. But I'd like to wish him a speedy recovery anyway. We'll get to this week's interview very, very shortly, right? But I just want to remind you that this is a listener supported podcast, as is the Global Gale, as is our man in Stockholm. As is Premier Swedes, and I put them all on the one feed and they're all free and they're always going to be free, right? I feel like I'm backing myself into a corner, painting myself into a corner, because you once you've said that, that's it, right? But yeah, because the point being that I don't want anything to, like I don't ever want money to be a barrier to taking part in, in our community, right? Whether that be playing Gaelic football for the Stockholm Gales, playing soccer with the, the Stockholm Gales EF team, listening to this podcast, you, it, it just, it should all be there. It doesn't matter where you are in life and what economic or financial muscles you have. I just want to put it out there. But that said, it's great when people who have a a few bob to spare can throw it into the hat to keep this thing going, right? So the more podcasts that come out, the more I'm going to be dependent on the generosity of your good sales to do this. The best way for me would be if you go to patreon.com forward slash man in Stockholm. And uh, if you can support me there, that's absolutely brilliant. Because it's like, you know, you can choose two euros a month, five euros a month, whatever. Five euros a month is absolutely brilliant. And if you can get a whole heap of people to do that, Irish people, both in Sweden and around the globe, then it really, really helps. Because that means you can plan. For the most part, you're very, very generous. And the people who sign up, they stay there and they tend to contribute and it's just it's brilliant to have people there for you know six months a year uh, and to have that sort of contribution because that way I can plan these trips to Lulio and I want to get down to Melbourne and that kind of thing as well you know so um yeah, if you can do that, that's magnificent altogether. If you can't do that, if you're not in a position to do that, there's always swish in Sweden. One two three two four two four one six six. That's one two three two four two four one six six. Uh if you want to just, you know, fire the year's worth of patriot in there, get it over and done with, and that's it. And I'll get to using it for paying the electricity bill and the odd SL ticket uh, going up to Lulia or down to Malmo or wherever or wherever else. Alright, let's get on with the proceedings. On this week's episode, we're going to head south. By the way, have you noticed there's an awful lot of lads and ladies from outside Stockholm on the podcast lately? You see, you see, I do be listening, I do be paying attention. This is not the Irish in Stockholm podcast, lads. It's the Irish in Sweden podcast. Anyway, this week's episode is going to take us down south for a fascinating story. And it's a man that I met a few years ago. God, I can't even remember if it's if it was two years ago, four years ago or six years ago. when We were playing a Gaelic football tournament down in Malmö. And as tends to happen at these things, you're standing on the sideline in your shorts and your socks and you're ready to go on. A fella comes over and hands you a beer. Now, as you all well know, I don't even drink alcohol, but this chance came up and had to be a beer. And it was Dermot Reedy from County Cork. And Dermot has started his own microbrewery there. Now, previously we've heard from the lads in Stengness who have their brewery there. Ciarán and Tom are on here with us. But again, it's like I was saying with the Global Gale podcast. Everybody has a story to tell and none of them are the same. Indeed, we're going to be talking to Carl Stein now next week or maybe the week after about uh, making soft drinks in this country. So it's just a fascinating story. So had got in touch uh, actually somebody suggested to me to me that I get in, t- in contact with Deerman and I got in touch with him down there and he lives down below in Eslov in Sweden. And the whole story about how he started the Uncharted Brewing Company is just amazing. Not just that he's brewing a wide variety of wildly popular beers and styles of beers down there in Eslov, but just how he came to be here, how he came to meet the Swedish woman that he came over here with, and uh how things have been since then. And it's one of those great stories of creativity. And of a vision And of resilience And all that And you know You get that feeling It's kind of like Peeling an onion So you know When I was having This conversation With Dermot Every time You know you, you asked him a question He told you something And it just led to Like 15 more questions Now No doubt I'm going to speak to him again I'd love to be down there With him someday When he's when he's making the beer But James We'll get to that At some point But for the time being We had a chat over Zoom About uh, himself And his wife And his brewery Down there in Eslov And uh, that's what We got for you today Enjoy it It's Banner. Uh, dear Mudreedy, I suppose we may as well start at the very beginning. Your background is not exactly brewing. It was more dairy farming in Cork, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, it, whereabouts are you from back home?
1: Yeah, a place called Belly Desmond, way out in the northwest of Cork. It's right on cork Kerry border. And what sort of a place was that to
0: grow up in? Was there very was there an awful lot of craft brewers around at that time? Was there?
1: Not a bit. Um, it would have been far from craft brewing. I think in uh, Ireland at that stage, the uh, I think you had the four taps in the pub and uh, the bottle of paddy behind the bar, and that was it. Hmm. There was
0: there was nobody making puchin locally or any of that kind of crack either.
1: I, I can neither confirm nor deny any of those allegations.
0: You don't have to name
1: anybody, dear, but that's that's all
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> but but it was mostly dairy farming in in Ballydesmond at that time that your family was involved in, was it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was all farming from uh, both sides. My mum, my dad. My dad was from across the border in Kerry, from Knocknagashel, and uh, mum was there in Ballydesmond. And yeah, I was they built up the dairy farm there over the years. Been working away on it since you know you, you sort of get out the door and you start working.
0: Hmm. Would you have been very involved in the farm then when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, I would have supposed like anything from you know learning how you milk cows to driving tractors and generally, you know, the the day to day of the farm, it, it's it's if it's something you grew up with, it's kind of, you don't think much of it, but looking back, yeah, it would have been a lot of, you know, out and about, being out in all weathers and uh, the joys of the, the Irish winter in particular. Hmm.
0: Is it something, because I mean, obviously it's it's a family thing and it tends to go on for generations in, in places like where you're from. Did you feel back at that time, Dermot, that's okay, this is something I want to do? Or did you think, Jesus, I can't wait to get out of here?
1: I don't think I appreciated it for the sort of work it was at the time at the same time I always had sort of much more of a technical side um my dad was very practical like most of the stuff we had are, you know built around the place or fixed ourselves uh would have been rare that we'd need to bring anyone in um just the, the handiness of Being able to, you know, weld or put together concrete and pour it and build a building, it was all sort of hands-on stuff. Um, -hmm. that kind of got me sort of always have been more sort of academically technical as well. So engineering was always something that I kind of had a the grow for, as they say. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's just uh, even when you sort of break it down, engineering is mostly sort of problem solving. So it's kind of an extension of what you do on a farm.
0: Hmm. And is there a very sort of strong, you know, when you're in farming, obviously, I mean, the more you do yourself, the more you can save. Is there a very sort of strong idea of self-sufficiency? Because essentially craft brewing is a very sort of a self-sufficient process as well, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Like the the more you can do yourself, the more sort of confident you are, or even the, the basic philosophy is, you know, do something if you break it and you learn, you learn much more fixing it than, just sitting there getting someone else to do it. So, Plus having as, as wide a as sort of a background and not being afraid to try your hand at things. Um, you made a brave decision one night.
0: You went out, I believe it was in Dublin, and you met the lovely Linda. How did that evening come about?
1: Um, it wasn't even an evening, actually. We went for um, a road trip to Galway uh, from Dublin. Um, just started talking to her there online there well and she was saying she had nothing planned for a weekend and um, I said yeah we have, I have wheels and if you want to pick a destination she picked Galway and wouldn't be a, a nice day just to get out and about and just go and see Ireland for a change because hmm. that's the thing if you're in Dublin and you don't have a car it's kind of hard to get anywhere or do anything much that easily
0: and how did you how did you meet how did you get to know each other was it was it online that you met yeah yeah and was that the first time you met sort of face-to-face when you wandered off to Galway for the day
1: uh yeah we've been talking a little bit before it but yeah it was the first face-to-face meeting it was kind of a on a on a whim just right see what we do Mm
0: well you're not nervous doing that there are getting into a car for somebody driving for whatever two and a half hours and you think you know Jesus what if I can't get on with this human at all because it can be different when you take the the uh, online to offline so to speak
1: well I think that's the thing though it's you know you, you'll you figure someone out quickly enough and that's at least the joy of a car you know and, and you, so ki- you
0: kick them out of, out of the car then a leak slip do you <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a, a train back from least but at the very least, you can always turn around from, uh, if it's not going well and you're saying, right, both of you going, no, nope. you turn around and it's, you know, be- better to have, you know, regretted not doing it or so than, uh, you know, do it and say, all right, didn't work out. All right.
0: Now, as it turned out, uh, the journey to Galway was one thing, but that journey eventually ended up in Åslov in southern Sweden for you. How long was it after you met that you decided that
1: maybe it might be time to move to Sweden? Um, back in 2015, we moved over. Um, the like we were living in the middle of Dublin, and like the kids were even scared of getting their hands dirty. The the creche had sort of astroturf at the back of it, and that was the limit of the space they had. And um, while well, we had a reasonable size garden and whatever, you know, living in the middle of Dublin, I grew up in the country, Linda grew up in the country. So it was uh, the other part as well. I was working either a Saturday or a Sunday or a Saturday and a Sunday with the job I was in at the time. So. Family wise, it was kind of uh, missing an awful lot as well. And that was where the decision to Sweden her to move to Sweden came about.
0: I mean, an awful lot of people probably would have waited until they had moved to Sweden before having children, that but your children were born before the two of you moved over here.
1: Yeah. I think um, actually was... Sweden works very well for families and kids, just with the setup and everything, and the fact there is so much child care and precious and everything else. It really it's kind of one of those things that sort of Sweden Swedes don't sort of take more advantage of, you know, go abroad, make your money abroad, come back, enjoy the system, then for it makes life so much easier with a family. Hmm.
0: Was it difficult for your kids moving over? Were they old enough to understand what was going on?
1: Um they weren't that enthusiastic at the start, but you know, like quickly enough, like the, the local crush was, you know, kilometer away. Uh, it was fully outdoors, so they, they really sort of got to burn off so much energy two young boys so mm. they were uh, and like they'd been learning with the Swedish as well with Linda so it wasn't sort of a, a complete shock mm. and they picked the rest of it up fairly
0: sharpish I'd imagine did they
1: oh yeah absolutely like it's kids that age it just just suck it up
0: yeah. And how was it for you then? Because you were coming from what sounds like quite a, a stressful and demanding job where you're having to work, you know, a day or maybe two days of a weekend every week and that kind of thing. Did you have any plan for what you were going to do when you get over when you got over here?
1: Um I the plan was to work in IT for a while anyway, just get the feet under me and then see about um we are thinking about either you know buying a farm and doing some sort of an open farm thing or do a brewery, do something in the food side of things, anyway. Hmm. Was that that was something that the two you shared
0: was an interest in, in food and in agriculture and, and drinks and that kind of thing? Was it, like, was there many long nights sitting in central Dublin or, or in Dublin thinking, oh, you know, how could we manage to, to achieve this dream in Sweden? Um, at least, yeah,
1: like we were looking to. To figure it out but it was more developed then when we came over um mm. just the even figuring out the system here in sweden as well takes a, a bit of head scratching and going through everything because it's uh, there's a lot more sort of rules and regulations and the just sort of i suppose mindset is a bit different here as well
0: yeah,
1: and I suppose you know that was the
0: thing. I was like, it kind of struck, it didn't strike me as odd, but it struck me as you know, if you're going to open up, especially in food, which is one of those, or, or drink, of course, but alcohol laws in this country it's one of those very sort of sternly regulated things. But mm. what, is that what ended up happening then? Did you get stuck into the IT business for a little while just to to sort of get yourself started, or or how did it work out for you? Yeah, I
1: was working for most of the first two years in IT, ended up being across in Denmark a fair bit on the contract side of it as well. So that was kind of uh, interesting with the commute as well, but the, the work was good. Um, and then working after that, sort of figuring out, even finding a location for a place was kind of tough. The You know, you get small places, you get very big places, and the, the sweet spot in the middle was kind of tough to find. Mm.
0: Did you miss this on the ITT? Because I mean, that's uh, that you wouldn't have been the only one who was commuting across the bridge to Denmark to do a day's work from southern
1: Sweden, would you? Um, No, like there was a fair chunk of Swedes across with me at the place I was working as well, so it was definitely sort of a shared misery on that part, anyway.
0: I, I've been on that train a few mornings alright and it wouldn't be the most joyful experience as people are heading yeah. off at whatever 7 o'clock you know yeah. um, Is Is Linda from Eslov? Does she have her family around you where you're living now?
1: Mm, she's from slightly further east in Scona um, It's a place just out of Christian Stead called mm. Um Sort of a small small sort of town slash village and like Christian said, was the closest place and then up until sort of recently, it wouldn't even have a, a motorway down to Lund. It was all sort of you get to Christianseid or place like that and just hop on the train. Then if you're not to Malmo or you take a, if you're driving, it's maybe, it used to be an hour, maybe more to, to Lund.
0: Hmm. It's a bit of a stretch, all right, you know, especially when you're commuting and that kind of thing. But um, when you're sitting down, are you one of these people doing, you know, when you were sitting down you decide, right, I want to start a brewery. Did you start small and then turn it into a job or was it always the intention that this was going to be what you were going to do? Like running a proper profitable business where you can have a proper wage coming out of it?
1: Um, Well, that's the theory anyway. It's kind of finally getting there. But I went with the theory that You need it at least to be big enough or else you're just chasing your tail, you know, brewing all the time and never making enough to expand, even though you have demand. So I kind of jumped to at least having a reasonable bit of scale and working on building up the business that way and doing a bit of IT work on the side as well, just for cash flow help. Mm, to keep it ticking over there. Um, how? What was the first brewery like? Where did you did
0: you do your first few bits and pieces in the kitchen, in the shed, or or how did you get started?
1: Um, just home brewing, literally putting together a sort of uh, home brew kits and brewing beer that way, and figuring out you know it's not that hard. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> was racing. it one of those over
0: over the counter things that you can buy? I think you can buy them in, in kind of ECA or some of these big supermarkets, was it?
1: Um no, I there was one book there. I don't know if you know the um, the whole River Cottage thing there in the UK. They brought out a whole series of books on everything from you know food, working with meat, all that. They did one on brewing, and the uh, the guys in that were saying, "Here's a very simple bit of kit you need for brewing. Put it together for you know a couple of hundred crowns, and away you go." Mm. What was the first batch that you made? What did I make first? Um, I think it was a regular IPA, just nice and simple and keep it clean. Figure out the, the basics of it that way. And how, how did it taste? Can you remember? Fine. I don't think it was anything special, but, you know, perfectly drinkable. Um figured out, you know, the all the little tricks you have to do as a home brewer when you don't have the the full sort of commercial kit, but it's yeah. you know, if if you can follow a recipe, you can brew here.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing, though, that there are all these sort of little tricks and there's temperatures and there's, you know, it has to be very, very sterile, I believe in that. So what were the kind of things that when you're doing it first, because, you know, I mean, it sounds like a master brewer. If you made something drinkable straight away, there's not too many people <laughs> to imagine get that straight off. But what were the kind of things that you learned in the process of that first batch?
1: Um... I think the big thing is that you know you don't need to be afraid of going and doing something like that. It's not that complicated really. The the basics are easy to understand. It's the you know if you're doing it properly, you have, you know, your malt grains, you get them crushed, you soak them in hot water for a certain amount of time to free up the sugars, wash them more out with more hot water, boil it up with hops. And put it in a sterile bucket with yeast and seal it up with an airlock, and leave it off for a week and a bit. And after that, then you're you're it should be finished. You can test it, and then you're sticking it into more than likely bottles or a, a small keg. And if you put it in bottles, then you leave it for two or three weeks to settle down, get a bit of fizz in it, and you're ready to taste your first effort, then. Was
0: there was there any sense of satisfaction or any sense of pride there, when you cracked open
1: that first bottle there? Um, there would be, because yeah, like you're, you know, there's that much more of a difference between say your your regular Carlsberg or Heineken, or whatever, which is kind of you know. There's nothing special in the taste, it's just reliable and predictable. It's you know, McDonald's beers. Mm. Um, but your own stuff, there'll always be that more sort of flavor and impact and sort of presence to it anyway. And then there's the satisfaction of my own as well. Mm. And I think more than even, you know, tasting it in yourself and being satisfied, other people drinking it and saying, hmm, Yeah, I like that, wouldn't I'd mm. have another.
0: <laughs> and that's when they get the wallet out, hopefully. It's start yeah. ordering more and more, of them, you know. And um, when it comes to because I was looking on, on your website, right? Um, let me see if I can get the website right. The website is uncharted-brewing.com, and you'll find all the details. The bit, but you have an awful lot of different beers there. How do you like you know, what's the difference in, in terms of how you make them? Because you know, you have stouts and you have ales and you have all sorts of different things. Is the process the same and just the ingredients change, or how do you do it?
1: Yeah, the the process is pretty much the same. The the colors and sort of flavors for the dark beers are all the uh grain side of things. And for say IPAs and stuff like that, then it's the hops that change to give different flavors out of that. And then stuff like the sour beers usually have fruit added in, and they're more where the, the flavor of those things come from as well. You get a bit of a basic beer flavor underlying it, but then fruit is what is uh, making it a bit more sort of acidic and giving it that sort of fruit freshness to it.
0: Mm. Do you have to be very precise doing that, Danwood? Because I'd imagine that if somebody goes and buys a can of your beer it's Sistema Lager, and they go, oh yeah, I like that. When they go back, they want to get the same thing again, right? They want to have the same taste. Is that very difficult, that sort of consistency to maintain?
1: Not particularly. like the you'll make small adjustments because you're dealing with sort of food ingredients and they're never going to be exactly the same. Like just the grains will have slightly different amounts of starch in them all the time. And it's just a case of keeping track of that while you're doing the brewing. But you're, you're generally aiming to be reliable and repeatable because that's, you're not amateur at that stage. Then it's the, People want predictability in what they have at the same time. Mm.
0: Um, tell me about the brewery you have now. I, I was looking at the, the details of it there. You're actually capable of brewing, you know, quite a, quite an amount of beer in in batches every day, aren't you?
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's, as I was saying there at the start, we went, the, the basic sort of brewery, brewery kit, there wasn't that much more price in terms of going that bit bigger. So we decided that, you know, if we need to expand beyond that size, then you need to go really large. So getting this level was good enough for the the medium term, anyway. And uh, you know, you can brew smaller batches on a big kit. You can't brew bigger batches on a small kit. This is true. <laughs> and how does it look then? Do you have a
0: Do you have like a factory? Do you have a brewery in itself, or is it still sort of you know attached to the house? Or how do you do it?
1: Oh, it's a separate place. It's that kind of sweet spot that you can, it's good enough now and you can grow a bit into it as well. There's enough space to uh, stick in more tanks, which is the only sort of limitation on growth at the moment.
0: What does a day brewing look like? So let's say you decide to brew stout there today now. What time do you get started at and what does the process look like for doing that? Um,
1: Depending on when I get into the brewery, it'll be, you'll pick out the, the grains you need for the brewing, usually maybe even the evening before you leave, stack them on a pallet, and depending on how much you're brewing, say if you're brewing, say 2000 liters, that will be 400 kilos of grains thereabouts for a wow. 5% beer, and stack them up, then we have the the malt crusher so the grains will be poured into that and they're crushed straight away they go into what they call the mash tun which where the crushed grains are mixed with hot water and it'll take about 20 minutes to mill the 400 kilos then it'll sit in the mash tun with hot water at about 66-67 degrees for an hour And then we'll start transferring the the liquid, basically the mash tun has a false bottom. So it Mm -hmm. keeps the grains and lets the liquid through. And you'll start pulling the basically sweet sugary liquid called wort out of the uh, mash tun and into the actual boil kettle. It's basically a very big electric kettle. Mm -hmm. And while that's happening, you're simply sprinkling in more hot water over the grains to wash the rest of the sugars out. It'll take maybe three, three and a half hours to get your 2,000 litres out of it. And the kettle is heating up as soon as the the level reaches the uh, elements. And when it's boiling, then you leave it boiled for an hour. You'll add in some hops for bitterness. If it's just a stout, that's all you do. Mm. And then... It's boiled for the hour. The hops basically give the bitterness and they're also antibacterial so they uh, protect the beer while it's uh, fermenting and stuff. Mm. Then you'll cool it down to about 18 degrees and when you're cooling it down through the heat exchanger you take the the energy back and put it in the hot water tank. So we're trying to reclaim as much energy as we can Mm. and... In the fermenter then, just add your yeast, leave it off then for what, seven, eight days, that'll be what all you need for fermenting a stout, and you'll cool it down then and start adding the CO2 into uh, the bottom of the tank, basically bubble it in very slowly to get the required level of uh, carbonation in there, you want sort of a not too much for stouts just enough to give you sort of that bit of creaminess in the head mm. and then so you've been open probably two weeks after you brew you're ready to put it in kegs or can it mm. so it's not not that long a turnaround time
0: and you can you can keg and can everything there yourself in the brewery that's amazing. Uh, just one question that I thought of: it. You mentioned there that um, that does electricity is obviously a big part of what you're doing. Is that is the price of that affecting your business drastically at the minute?
1: It's a reasonable bit. Like I'm because I'm purely effect- electric, and here it is, um, affecting a fair bit, but not not to the extent that other breweries. Because I'm so big, I can brew one batch. And that Mm. does me that beer for quite a while. And the the only sort of ongoing electricity use would be the uh, sort of fridges and freezers and the cooling units for the tanks. Mm. And you get a spike in electricity then when you brew or run the canning machine. Mm.
0: And would you brew sort of, you know, once every eight days? Is there a sort of a constant process of brewing that goes on there from one beer to the next?
1: Yeah, but when you have that number, generally you, you'd hopefully be rotating them, you know. Yeah, one, once a week, once every eight, 10 days, you grow a large batch, and then that's enough to cover you for maybe a, a quarter. Mm. Um, otherwise, as well, sometimes you can get stuff coming in for export or things like that, that you'll put together a couple of big batches then and ship that off. Mm.
0: Um, how do you go about marketing these things, downward? Because we all know, you know, with the system, Loggett and the limited opening hours and how hard it is to get on the shelves there and that kind of thing, you have a good few bars and pubs and, and uh, catering firms that take your beer off you. Uh, you have a, a light beer, a left as well that you, that you sell that can probably be sold in shops or supermarkets. But
1: where do you find your customers? Um, It's kind of tough in Sweden, literally, because, as you said, the marketing is so limited um as well the general state of it is that you have to go knocking on doors and sweeten itself because of the way the the system works there's you're, you're so limited in the number of bars that can actually take beers that if they're tied in with a contract to the big breweries they're not allowed to uh put other beers on tap on those taps anyway your only option then is to talk to them and say you know I have a tap machine, do you want to put it in and serve my beer that way? But it's it's a tough enough sell in that all the other breweries are chasing the same limited market.
0: Mm. And in terms of the private consumer then, it's kind of system belonging to bust, isn't it, You're Depending on people either finding it in the southern Swedish stores or ordering
1: it to their local in Corsiq in or whatever it is. Mm, yeah. Mm. Like the, the marketing, you're, you're on social media then trying to push a little bit that way. But you kind of have to be careful on that front as well because of the advertising regulations. Like mm-hmm. it, it's some places have gotten so crazy, like there's a brewery in Norway. They've actually banned any um, social media access from their own country because yeah. the, their advertising would be illegal there. So they can't allow their their in-country customers to see their social media feed. Jesus, that's gas altogether.
0: And I mean, that must make it very difficult for you because you're kind of relying on social media and word of mouth to get the word out about your different beers and when a new batch is ready or if you have come up with a new recipe, right?
1: Yeah. Like, it is so much that, well, it's even the beer festivals aren't, well, there hasn't been any in the past couple of years and there's only a couple of sort of beer-related websites as well that have any... um Traction in country like this beer which really is probably the big one and then you might get little pieces in either local newspapers or things like that for say you know summer beers, Easter beers, the sort of seasonal stuff which is kind of a bit crazy considering that you know it's, it's taking the Swedish trend of having a day for everything you know Ta Friday or whatever <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the thing you need to get your head around as well.
0: Yeah, because, of course, you can't just
1: decide, you know, on
0: sort of, you know, the Monday of Easter week, I'm going to do an Easter beer. You have to do it like a month in advance or two months in advance.
1: Three, four months in advance, uh, even longer, actually. It would be, they'd be taking, they'd be the, the tender for Easter beers we be going out now.
0: So that'd be Systema longer be coming to you and saying, okay, brewers, we want your Easter beers. And they'd be sending it out now in October for next That's- Easter.
1: Well, the the, the the tender will go out now and you have to be in the system for that. And then you'd be probably brewing January, February for the the mm-hmm. launch then. How
0: hard? It. It's a hell of a thing. I mean, how hard is it to get your stuff on the shelves of Sustem
1: Um, It's gotten to the stage now where they're saying, um, for the most part, you cannot get new beers if you don't take old beers off the shelf. Okay, so you have a fixed spot
0: sort of thing, right? We can put out 24 cans of your stuff. And if you want 12 of a different thing, you have to take
1: them away. Um, it, it's actually quite complicated. The, the system works for the small breweries fairly well. But when you get to a certain size, you're kind of hitting the upper limit. What happens is every brewery, when you bring out a beer, it can get on the shelf in up to... 10 shops within 100 kilometers of you. Mm. Normally, you'll get maybe anything between one and three when it launches, or if you're, if, it, if it's a popular beer style or you have a good track record, they'll give you more than that. And then every year, they review the sales in those stores and compare the, your beer sales to other beers in the same category. And you either get more stores or less stores, depending on how the beer is doing. You bring out another beer, Again, you can get stores. You won't. You probably not. You might get the same stores, but you might not. So e- each beer is kind of launched into wherever has chilled space at the time.
0: So, so it's not okay. This is close to you in Eslov there. It's just ah, oh, you know, up the road in Lund they have a bit of space there. Throw it on there kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that could be that. Like it's it's some of my beers have been you know. Lundy Shopping, Lund, Krona, Her, Herbies, Fall of, Ace Love. And then others are, you know, Hansen, Malmo, somewhere else in Malmo, Dolby, the three stores in Lund, and Ace hmm. so um, Love. Would, would
0: they ever if, offer you a spot outside of Skåne? Because that's they're all pretty much in, in the south, right?
1: That, that's it. You you get on up the 10 stores are within 100 kilometers of you, usually, and hmm. sort of certain regional areas around you um you're in the bestelling assortment bin as well for the web shop but that's it And yeah. luckily, i kind of got onto the there's the new flagship beer system it in gothenburg one of my beers the irish red is up there because not many other people are making irish red so they needed mm. that that category to be filled um but that's it it's you're so limited as soon as you get, get to a certain scale. Hmm.
0: Now, would it be possible for me up here in Stockholm to go, right, I want to order, you know, two cans of this, four cans of that, you know, fill up before Christmas and say, I want Dermot's beer. And they'll be able to get that for me to my local shop here
1: in Sista. Absolutely, yeah. Any, anything on the System like web shop is should be deliverable anywhere in Sweden. Hmm.
0: Um, do you find that you get any sort of, you know, uh, do people look better on your brewing because you're an Irishman and Ireland has a great reputation through Guinness and Murphy's and Kenny and all these other beers, or is it, you know, sort of, okay, well, we have all them, so we don't need this Irish fella.
1: Um, I think it is more because my, the, the as going way back, like the, um, the actual cans, the design part of it stands out. It was a conscious decision at the start that, you know, you need a good design you need a consistent theme because people buy with their eyes anything on the shelf or anything that people can see visually that's your first impression so mm-hmm. we kind of had to make you know a good solid theme and good clean design as well because that's that makes you recognizable as a brand if you bring out something new people can go without even seeing the, the label oh that's that design i know that mm-hmm. company and who, yeah. who did the designer
0: well, for you? Was that yourself and Linda, or did you get somebody in from outside to do it? Uh,
1: we come up with the theme and the sort of name, but we are a freelance designer over in Copenhagen. She's done all the cans for us, and yeah, they they, they
0: really are beautiful. And there's a lot of animals and fish and birds and everything involved. So it really is very easy to like. They're very identifiable. If I was to walk into yeah. Systembolaget now, I'd know exactly which beers were yours. You know? Yeah,
1: exactly. It, it's. So many brands, even beer brands, don't get it that you need to be standing out on the shelf. You need to be have a, a consistent theme as well that people will recognise other of your beers too. Where does this all end up, Dermot? Because,
0: you know, I'm sure you'd love to be like our neighbours across in Copenhagen, the Carlsberg Brewery there, selling millions of litres every week, you know. But what would be sort of, you know, what would be success for you? What would you be
1: happy with as a brewer in southern Sweden? Um, Well, I think you have to look outside of Sweden. The, the current sort of limits on the system mean that you're not really going to get any volume in sales to grow very much unless you win one of the system its tenders mm. where everyone is going in for them. Um, so it's a case of getting lucky in that or you have to look outside of Sweden and the export market and just start doing the, the legwork and grinding that out. So I think for me, success-wise would be, you know, Brewing regularly, shipping enough that the uh, the place is pleasantly busy and I can sort of work on the sort of business side of it rather than just uh, doing everything as I'm doing at the moment. Hmm. Is it a very fulfilling job? Do you enjoy getting up in
0: the morning and wandering off to the brewery to do your day's work?
1: There's a lot of satisfaction in it. I think coming back even to sort of the you know having a variety of things that you do is kind of good for the, the body and the spirit like the, the brewing is fairly physical mm. but you have a tangible output at the end of it as well that you know you can drink it you're happy with it <laughs> and, and people will buy it um, and then as well the, you you have a brand and a company that you're building as well that's kind of the the longer term satisfaction out of that as well. When you go back to that car
0: journey with yourself and Linda to Galway, and you look back over all that time, and you you know where you were then and where you are now, is this what you expected when you started hanging around with this Swedish woman, or has it
1: just been completely out of the blue? I think pretty sort of. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't particularly sort of. I don't even had any real long term plan. That you know it's you kind of a series of sort of short and medium term plans and then you gotta roll with the way life works out. Hmm. And are you happy with the way it's worked out so far? Yeah, that's the thing. Like it I'm generally of the philosophy, you know, that's you know done is done, you can't go back and change anything, so you just have to keep going forward. There's there's no point in you know wishing I could have done this or that. It's the The regret of not doing something is worse than the regret of doing something. Exactly. You're in the middle of it now, so it's just a case of keeping going. Absolutely, yeah. It's the legs going fast under the surface of the water.
0: Exactly. Well, I would hope that the people who are listening to this can go into blog it now and they'll find uh, the, the beers there. They'll find all the information there. It's the Uncharted Brewing Company, uncharted-brewing.com. And you can go there and you can order everything from Thirsty Hippo to Stouts to all sorts of beers that are that are there on the shelf. So I might, might as well uh, get the uh, the orders in there now for Christmas, lads. But for now, Darren really, thanks so much for talking to me.
1: Very welcome, Phil. Great to talk to you. you're sucked into drinking beer by believing it's a healthy thing all these beer commercials usually show big men manly
0: men doing manly things you've just killed a small animal it's time for a light beer
1: (laughs) why not have a realistic beer commercial what's the realistic thing about beer where you go it's five o'clock in the morning you've just pissed on a dumpster it's miller time (laughs) it's a scary thing because you realize the first purpose of alcohol is to make english your second goddamn language Eventually you may be quite
0: fluent. You may be a Nobel Prize physicist. After my maybe nine, ten Heinekens, you're going... A-c-a-ra.
1: <laughs> A-c-a-ra. You're speaking fluent drunkenese. Bravo.
0: There you go. The late, great Robin Williams there talking about drinking beer. Now, I have it on good authority that drinking beer from the Uncharted Brewing Company in Eslov does not have that effect. You actually end up sounding clever and being more attractive to the opposite sex or to whoever you want to be attractive to when you drink their beer. That's, that's scientifically proven. It's that simple. Thanks very much indeed to Dermot for talking to me. I will add a link to the show notes, right? So if you look at where you're listening to this podcast, you'll find a link to uh, the Brewing Company and you can trace them from there. You can see if there's any beers there that might take your fancy. Order them to your local on it, and they'll deliver them and you'll have them easily in time for Christmas. I would suggest testing a few out now and then you'll know what you want to order more of for Christmas. So uh, yeah, definitely get in there. Before we round it off for this week, there's just a couple of things. There are a couple of jobs out at the Irish Embassy at the moment. One is to do with the EU presidency. It's uh, a contract for next year. I think it runs from sort of December until August. It's a bilingual job, right? So for the love of God, if you're applying for it, make sure you speak Swedish and English. And preferably a little bit of Irish as well. But Swedish and English, right? Fluent, lads. No sense of going spoofing in there that you speak Swedish if you don't. Or that you speak English if you don't, Right. And uh, it looks like a great job because it's going to be working on uh, the EU presidency. Sweden are going to be taking over the presidency of the EU and therefore Ireland needs somebody to help them work out what the hell's going on over here during that time. And the other is for a full-time driver and administrator. Now that job I think was, there. It was a part-time just for a driver only and they've expanded and made it full-time. So get user applications in there. Um, I can't describe how great the team at the embassy is, right? The people working in what is now called Ireland House from both from the Department of Foreign Affairs and from the embassy and the ambassador on down, but also from Bord Bia and when Tourism Ireland pop up and when Enterprise Ireland pop up, that might be them mailing me now in the background. Um, Yeah, so all of those great people there are a great bunch of colleagues, great place to work, slap bang in the middle of Stockholm. So if you've been studying politics, international relationships, uh, anything like that, if you have a full, clean driver's license and you want to work at the embassy, uh, find them, knock them up on Twitter there and find out where the applications go for that. It's usually a bit of a process because all these things, they have to follow very specific rules about how they go about the recruitment process and that. But throw your name into the hat there because it's a great place to work and in the service of our wonderful country back home. That is it for me For the time being Uh, Remember As I said uh, I think I said it somewhere On social media right I'll be off to the World Cup In Qatar In about the middle of of November, so I'm looking to speak to people who have stories to tell me timeless stories, ladies and gentlemen, like Gone with the Wind, right? So, uh, if you have something you'd like to tell me about, if you have a book you've written and album you're releasing that kind of thing, and you're not dependent on the date the podcast goes out, get in touch. We'll do the interview so that I have those things sort of you know in the larder for when I'm over in uh, in Qatar there because I think there's a bit of a time difference there, and I want to keep bringing your podcast because that's what we do, lads. Seven o'clock of a Monday morning, this is coming out whether you like it or not, and it will be very Short if it's only me talking about the world cup, right? So, do get in touch. Uh, I was talking to Comic O'Brien down there in uh, in Gothenburg, and we've a lovely piece coming up about uh, rugby and his life and his life as a referee there. So, that's going to be dropping at some point in the next few weeks while I'm abroad. So, do get in touch. And the plan is that I'll record the podcast as normal. So wherever I'm staying there, I'll do the intros and the outros. So if there's any community news or that, I'll, I'll keep up with that as well. But I'm trying to get the lion share, of the interview sorted out before I go. So do get in touch if you've got... Indeed, if you're from the state agencies or the uh, or the embassy, you've had, and they, people need to know the Swedish Irish Society, the Stockholm Gales, Lulio GEA, Yavla, GEA. You know who you are. So get in touch. I will leave it at that for this week. You're wonderful people. I've had some great feedback over over the last little while and I really get so much out of you getting so much out of this podcast and I want to keep it going. So in the meantime, look after yourselves and look after one another. And we'll be back in a week with another Irish and Sweden podcast. Good luck. <laughs>